text this morning is from John chapter 2. So please open to the book, or 1 John chapter 2. Our text is in 1 John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 11, but we'll read from the start of the chapter. First John chapter 2, beginning at the chapter. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old one that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness has passed away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage today looking at the second test, the test of obedience to God in brotherly love, We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to see clearly, open our minds to understand completely, and, Lord, bless our spirits that we might be obedient to the things we hear and take them to heart. In Christ's name, amen. So we talked last time, or a couple of weeks ago, about the greatest commandment. Jesus was challenged, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers them by quoting a couple of Old Testament verses. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, from Deuteronomy 6.5. And that was the first test then. And the second is like it. He said, oh, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19.18. The first and greatest commandment was the first test we saw in 1 John 2, starting at verse 3. We know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, if we obey God. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so obedience and love are directly connected. And so the test of obedience is really a test of love for God. And vice versa. In John, to know God is to love God, is to walk in the light with God. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 6. And it really is to have life, 
In other words, to, to know God is to have eternal life, to have salvation. And now we're moving on from that first and greatest test to a second test, brotherly love, which is from the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what we'll be looking at starting at verse 9 of chapter 2. But let us pray first. Oh, we already prayed. Uh, only the unsaved person is going to hate their brother, is what John is telling us in this passage. If you say you are in the light and you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. If you're in darkness, you don't know God. If you're in darkness, you're not saved. And so he's saying if you don't love your brother but you hate your brother, you're still an unbeliever. Now, John is probably writing to those who were falsely claiming to know God, often through superior knowledge to that of which the church has. But we've already seen by their disobedience to God's revealed will, they're shown to be liars, according to the first test of obedience back in verse 3 of the chapter. However, he's not stopping there. He's saying now, God has commanded and Christ has commanded to love your brother as yourself, your neighbor as yourself. And therefore, if you hate your brother, you're disobeying God. If you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. And so he's given a second test. This is one of the specific explicit commands that Jesus has reiterated and explained in more detail in his ministry. Uh, he says, a new commandment I give to you, John 13, 34 and 35, that you love one another just as I have loved you, for you, you should also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so this is both an old commandment from the Old Testament and from out, throughout all of history, but it is also a new commandment in which he is exempt, um, emphasizing that that is what declares you to be his disciple. Uh, and this new commandment becomes then the second test, which exposes really the failure of the first test. First test was to obey. You're commanded to love your brother. If you don't love your brother, you're not obeying. Clearly you failed both tests. And so they say, oh, I love God. Do you keep his commandments? Oh, yes, I do. Right? Remember the rich young ruler? Very confident. All these I have kept from my youth. We'll talk about that next time because that's the next test, but or in a couple of weeks because that's the next test. But he's he's saying, do you do you love your brother? Now that's the test. Do you keep your commandments? That's the first test. So if you hate your brother, you really you don't know God. Uh, John talks about this later. We'll get to that in chapter 3, verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, why is it murder to hate your brother? Well, because you're murdering him in your heart. And the overflow of the heart is how these things come out, how they're done. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 15:18 and following, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And so, you know, it's a heart matter. If you're hating him, 
you're guilty of the same sin as if you had murdered him. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5, 21 and following, You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Liable to hell fire, he goes on to say. And so it is important that we love our brother. Now, of course, we all remember Pontius Pilate when Jesus was revealing to him the truth. He, he dismissed him as, what is truth? You know, the, the sophists of our day are very quick to say, oh, what is truth? Bill Clinton is very famous for saying, well, what does is mean? I'm going to redefine is so I'm not guilty. Um, these people want to redefine what is truth. Pilate did. And people will still, well, who is my brother? That was the subject of the Good Samaritan, Remember? You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, Matthew 5, 43. Uh, by the way, the hate your enemy was a teaching of apostate Judaism, not in the Bible. But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that, it may, that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Is brother and neighbor the same? Well, in Jesus' teaching, neighbor was your fellow Jew. And so, yes, brother, neighbor are very much related. And can we have enemies then? Amongst our brothers, amongst the church? Well, sadly, if you've been around churches and been in bigger churches, you'll find that that's often the case. That Christians and people who profess Christ hate their brother. You know, we're all sinners and some very great sinners. And we all walked in darkness at one time. And we have a lot of that baggage with us. You know, remember what? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, that you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Yeah, we've, we were once lost in the darkness, and we still have some of that darkness clinging to us. We want to walk in the light, and we're being challenged to walk in the light, to put that darkness aside, to seek God through repentance, through the confession of sins, as he talks about in chapter 1 of 1 John, that we might really be children of God. We've been called to it by the grace of God. And so we shouldn't be arrogant over our brothers. Um, We don't know whether somebody is saved or not. And we don't know when they will be saved, when they will be converted by the Holy Spirit, when they will go from being immoral or idolaters or adulterers or whatever to being children of Christ, children of God and our brothers in Christ. 
And if you think about the Apostle Paul, he says that he was a blasphemer and persecutor and insolent opponent in 1 Timothy 1.13. And yet what happened after he was converted? God appears to Ananias to tell him to baptize Paul. And what does Ananias say in Acts chapter 9, verse 13 and 14? Lord, I've, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, he didn't want to have anything to do with Paul, even though even though God himself had appeared to him and said, go, go baptize the man. And when he went to Jerusalem, later in the chapter, verse 26 of chapter 9 of the book of Acts, and attempted to join the disciples, they were afraid of him and did not believe he was a disciple. So Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and told him, the whole story, how he'd been converted and how he had worked hard, boldly preaching the name of Christ in Damascus and how they wanted to kill him. And he was then allowed to go. But you know, from that, we can see you don't know who's going to become a brother. You don't know who's going to repent, who's going to change their ways, who's going to be reformed. I mean, you never know the person who is causing you all the grief in the church or in life you know, God could eventually convict them of their sin and they might turn from it. They might already be a brother, but living in a backslidden condition or living in sins that they haven't dealt with yet. So what do we mean by brother? Well, a brother ultimately is a believer, but it gets extended by Jesus in particular beyond just the regular believers to be, you don't know, who might be converted. And so you should love your enemies in the hopes that that love you show them will change their hearts. And that does happen. Of course, the sophists will then go on to say, well, what is love? And how does the world today define love? Well, love is the way other people make me feel, how they treat me and do good to me and make me happy. And that makes me have love for them. That is the universal almost definition of love in our age. I remember challenging that once in the youth group, I think at camp, and being pretty soundly rejected. Because that is what love is, and whatever you're talking about is not love. Whatever the Bible says. And so they've redefined love, and then, oh, I love my brother. Oh, that guy's a jerk, though, so I don't have, so there's no love for him, and that's not a problem because. Love is how he makes me feel. And it's okay to hate him. And so they try and weasel their way around the commandments and around the teachings of God and of Christ. Well, what is love? John describes for us the real basis for love. What is the basis for the love of the world who don't know God? It is how the other person makes me feel. How is it for the Christian? 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. In other words, the love God showed us in changing our heart now enables us to have biblical love, real love for our brother. We'll look at that verse when we come to it, but he's taken out that heart of stone, given us our heart of flesh, transformed our lives, and now we are capable of having love. What does love look like, biblical love? 
Well, Paul devotes a whole chapter to it. I just want to read a couple of verses from the chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I'll start at verse 4 and read the 7. Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Uh, Is any part of that how other people make me feel? Uh, That doesn't have any bearing in what love is in the Bible. Love is how we treat others, not how we feel about how they treat us. Jesus raises the bar even higher. He says in John 15:12 and following, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus is a perfect example of what it means for us to love, and we should follow that example. How far do we follow that example? Well, the next verse. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love is taking care of and being concerned about and having that attitude towards the person that you'll do what you can for them, even to the point of your death. You are my friends if you do what I command, the following verse. Jesus is saying that for the believer, we should love as he loved, and that love is a self-sacrificial love, a love that is willing to give up what it wants, what it needs. Love is not selfish. Love does not insist on its own way. And so that is biblical love. So what does it mean really to love my brother in that context? Well, it means we need to show true love to them. We've gotten some hints, but I want to stop for a minute and point out one thing that is important. The man who sins, we've already read, will die. The ones who live in their sins have no place in the kingdom of God. There will be no sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or homosexuals or thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers in the kingdom of heaven. None at all. If somebody is living that lifestyle where they are greedy or idolatrous or adulterous or drunkards or liars or cheaters or homosexuals, they don't get to go to heaven. If you love them, do you want them to go to hell and be tormented for all eternity? The first thing we need to think about is our attitude towards sin. If your brother sins against you, Jesus commands in Matthew 18:15 and following, go tell him his fault between you and him, and if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19.17, we read before, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. How is it connected? Well, the rest of the verse. 
But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Now, his sin is your problem, too. You remember my illustration, and I know I'll get laughed at for using the same illustration again, but if a child thinks he can fly and wants to jump off the roof, breaks his leg, and comes to you and says, well, it wasn't high enough, so I didn't cross that imaginary threshold taught by the world's fantasies that I could fly, I need to be higher. You love him, so I love you, and I want to support you in your dreams, and I'll take you to the city, and we'll jump off a 10-story building. Is that love? Or do you tell you the kid, no, you're an idiot. If you continue doing this, you will die. And if they try to continue to do it, you stop them. And if you're forced to use corporal punishment to persuade them not to jump off the roof of the 12-story building, then you do so. That's love. I think we can all understand that. Well, the same is true of sin. You know, there won't be any of those sinners in heaven. There will be no adulterers. There will be no immoral people. There will be no greedy people, no thieves, no drunkards, no revilers, no swindlers, no homosexuals, none of those people. Such were some of you, and you were washed. What does it mean? Well, you had no place in heaven, but the blood of Christ has washed away your sins. Your faith in him brings that salvation about, that that gift of God, of faith, and you're saved. What do I want for my children? I want my children to be saved. I love them. I want them to go to heaven with me. What do I, how do I show that love to my neighbor, to my family member? Well, I want them to go to heaven. How do they go to heaven? Get that, trick them into saying the sinner's prayer. Uh, I love the illustration that was given to me a couple of weeks ago of somebody at a wedding trying to bully the groom into saying the sinner's prayer and wouldn't let him enjoy his own wedding until he finally gave up and said it. And then he cursed Christians and cursed God because he was so frustrated with that kind of foolishness. You know, that's not what we're doing. We're trying to get them not to say the sinner's prayer, but to repent of their sins, to embrace Christ as offered in the gospel, to receive the forgiveness of sins, to, to go from the kingdom of Satan in the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ and into the light and to walk with him. We can't just smile and say, it's okay. But of course, what happens when we tell people about their sin? Oh, if you're trying to convict me of sin, that proves you hate me. I remember my own father telling me I worship the God of hate because he hates sin. But really what they're saying is if you try to convict me of sin, it makes me miserable and uncomfortable and I'll hate you for it. And the hatred is on their side. Remember the story Jesus told to his biological brothers. They were mocking him about going up openly to the, the feast. And he said, now is not the time for that. And chapter 7, verse 7 of John, he says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. 
They hate the light because the light exposes their sin and their corruption and they're not going to tolerate the light and they don't want to be around the light and they're going to fight against the light. And so, yes, if we love them, we want them to turn from their sinful ways and embrace Christ. They will say we hate them for telling them that because they don't yet know. But when they do, if they do, then they will understand that it was love. It is not love to smile and say it's okay. It's love to tell them that they need Christ and that apart from Christ, there is no way to heaven. And apart from Christ, there is only torment in hell. And yes, this can be hard for people. The book of Proverbs, though, reminds us over and over again for the need of this discipline of turning people away from sin to God. Starts off in chapter 3, verse 11. Man, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves and a father the son whom he delights. Now we are part of that in showing them that their sin is sin. And then they can see what God has done to them as a result of their sinful life. And they can turn from it if God has worked in their hearts. In chapter 5, verse 22 the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. If you love that person, discipline, exposing his sin, trying to get him to turn from his sin, using whatever power you have in your place to help him turn from it. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching of light and the reproofs of discipline are for the way of life. Proverbs 6:23. And of course, we all know the verse, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Why is it love to discipline him even with the rod? Because we don't want him to suffer in hell. We want him to live rightly before God. We want him to glorify God. We want him to arrive in heaven and have God say, well done, my good and faithful servant, to our child, to our brother, to our neighbor, to our spouse. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. Proverbs 15, 10, and 11. God knows, and God will bring them to justice, and we want them to repent first. And part of our love for our brother is to try and turn them from our sin. And we've spoken of the, the consequences, church discipline when it's needed. You want to help them how you can, and we know what we've already seen in 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be clean from our sins. They can be clean from their sins if they acknowledge them and confess them. And so we cannot be silent if we love someone. But that is the way of our age and the way of the church in our age to think that we should be silent in the face of sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10, he's been dealing with serious sin in the church. And he says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter has grieved you. 
though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief, and so that you suffered no loss from us. He was sorry that he made them suffer from his letter, but he was not sorry because that suffering brought them to repentance. And so if we love our brother, we want him to repent. Of course, we don't want to then be the one who stumbles him either. Uh, We spoke quite extensively about the early church controversy concerning meat sacrificed to idols. And the conclusion of the matter was found in Romans 14. I'll just read two verses to remind you. Verse 15 of chapter Romans 14. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Down in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The idea being if our actions, even though we are in the right, are hurting and stumbling others, we are causing them to fall into sin, that sin is then ours as well, that we have done that to them, and we are not walking in love. And walking in the light, walking in love, is what this test is all about. Of course, you know, I may have started with that, but it really means dealing then with our own sinful heart too not just the actions of our brother, but our own actions. Uh, Matthew 5, 21 and following, where Jesus, we looked at start the beginning of it before, you've heard it said, you shall not murder whoever murders is liable to judgment. I say everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to turn quickly with your accuser while you're going to him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. I tell you truly, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And we know that there is no payment sufficient to God for our sin because of our finiteness. Only Christ's infinite sacrifice can cover that. But note what it says. You know, we are the ones who need to go and reconcile with our brother for our sins. Yes, if we love our brother, we'll tell him of our sin, tell him of his sin to get him to repent. But if we love our brother, we need to repent of our own sin against him and reconcile with him. And that, mess, that, that ministry of reconciliation with God is what Christ has given his people. And we must also then reconcile with God's people and be reconciled. For what does cause the fights and quarrels among you, James 4? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask what you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Of course, that's John's next test, so we won't talk about that now. But 
What causes the problems we have with others? Why do we hate our brother? Yes, sometimes our brother is in sin, but more often it's because we're in sin. We need to deal with our own sin. To love our brother means to acknowledge our sin, repent of our sin, turn from our sin, and reconcile with our brother. It's not done if we haven't finished the process with reconciliation. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. Loving our brother also means acknowledging that he is a brother. And that's one of the ways the sophists get out of this. Oh, you know, it's okay for me to hate that person because he's not really a brother because, you know, he's done this and this and this. But if the person has a credible profession of faith, we cannot just reject him and say, I don't consider him a brother. He's a brother if God made him a brother. We don't get that choice. To reject somebody because they're hard to get along with is really telling Christ we reject somebody he died for. Your death is not sufficient, Christ, because I'm not going to be loving that person. And if we say that, that's why John is saying, then you don't know Christ. We, we started this to look at John, 1 John 4:19 and following a little while ago. We love because he first loved us. And now I want to continue on to the next part, verse 20 and following. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is a commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you're loving God, you must be loving your brother. If you're saying, oh, I don't love my brother, or I'm saying he's not a brother because I don't love him, and that's a rationalization we like to make. If it's sin, not to, if it's sin to hate my brother, then the person I hate can't be my brother because I hate him, and that would be sin. Sophistry at its finest. But we've passed from darkness to light. And we're walking together with Christ in the light. All of our works are exposed. And we're enjoying fellowship with Jesus. But that fellowship is with Jesus and all who are fellowshipping with him. All who fellowship with one another. We've been taken from that domain of darkness and put into the kingdom of his son. And we're walking all together. Now, can you imagine a child who wants to go fishing or go to the amusement park with their father? And they're ready to go and they say, oh, but you're bringing that one with you too? My sister, my brother? I don't want to go. I'll stay home. I mean, can you imagine a child doing that? Probably they'd go along and fight the whole time. But, you know, isn't that what we're doing when we say, I hate my brother? We're saying, I don't want to be with him, but he's with Christ. So where does that leave us? If we hate our brother, we are separating ourselves from Christ. We are turning back to the darkness, away from his light. We are rejecting God. We are renouncing our faith when we say we will not walk with Christ because we do not want to walk with the brother who we hate. And that's... John's point here, that you're not walking with Christ if you're living in hatred for your brother. Are we going to reject God and be rejected by God because we reject the person he carries in his bosom, 
And Isaiah 40.11 says that he will tend his flock like his shepherd, gather the lambs in his arms, he'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead them who are with young. You know, if somebody is a brother, he is in Christ's arms. If we're hating them, how can we do that? Knowing what Christ has paid for them, knowing that they are walking with him in the light, knowing that we also want to walk with Christ. You know, the two are incompatible is John's point. Now, <clears throat> I've gone a bit long on the first point. Many commentators just kind of lump these three verses together and then make their points from there. But I want to look verse by verse. Continuing on with verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, as I've just been saying. And there is no cause in him for stumbling. And if we love our brother, we show that we've been brought from darkness into the light and we are walking with Christ in the light. And the closer, the more we love our brothers, the more we are in the light with Christ is what we are seeing here. And in the light of loving sincerely our brothers, we can see. We can see what is laid before us. We can avoid stumbling both ourselves and others, the path will be clear and smooth and fully lit so that there is no cause for sin between us if we have love. Remember, love is patient and kind, etc., but it bears all, it believes all, it hopes all, it endures all. If we are truly walking in light, the causes for our stumbling, the things that frustrate us, the things that anger us, that make us bitter towards our brother, They can be overcome through the love that God has called us to love. And so when we are walking in the light rather than the darkness, there's no cause for stumbling. It goes on, though, (coughs) in the next verse to say, if you hate your brother, you are walking in the darkness and you don't know where you're going because you're blind. You don't see spiritually. Love and hatred for our brother here are set in stark opposition to each other. And just as in Christ there is no darkness, there is no shadow of any kind, in the same way if we are walking with him in the light, we are walking with him. But if we are hating our brother, we are still in the darkness. We're not in the light. There's a big distinction he is making here between the two. You're in one or the other. You're not wandering around halfway enjoying both lives. That's what he taught us in the beginning of the book is not true. You don't know God if you think that's possible for you. And so we either walk in the light with him or we walk in the darkness without him. In the same way, if we're exercising biblical love to our brothers or we're hating our brothers, we can't be both at the same time. And so we need to repent of the hatred we have and reconcile and deal with these things. Most importantly, this test is telling us that if we hate our brother, we're disobeying God's commandment, Jesus' commandment, we're proving ourselves doubly not to know God. Now, we know there's none of us who are perfect We've already talked about that. Anyone who says they're perfect, John 1, 
1 John 1, 7 through 10, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son, who cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. You know, we all struggle at times with hatred, with contempt, with scorn for our brothers, with desiring to separate from them. And we know that. He's not saying we must be perfect in our love all the time because none of us can do that. But he is faithful and just to forgive us if we confess our sin, if we see Yes, in this way I am not loving my brother. In this way I am sinning. In this way I want to stop and I want to turn and I want to obey God more and more day by day. And I repent of that sin and I seek that forgiveness. And as he said, I confess my sins and he is faithful and just to to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need that cleansing every day through confession, repentance, turning and seeking the true light. Let us pray. (coughs) Gracious Heavenly Father, we see, Lord, that it is hard to love our brother. And we know, Lord, that they are nearly as unlovable as we are at times. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see our loveless attitude, our indifference towards their sin, our desire not to be near them, our desire to see them harmed. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us that and that you would help us to turn our hearts to true love towards one another, towards those in our family, towards those in our church, towards those around the world who call upon your name. And we ask, Lord, for grace in being a proper witness about your love, both in demonstrating the love of your Son in our lives and living that way, but also in calling others to turn from their sin and to do love you as he did. And we ask, Lord, your cleansing blood be put upon us. And we ask for mercy and strength to live a better life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.